mistaken for someone else, you just kind of laugh it off. But if you've approached someone and are kind of caught in it, it's like, oh, okay, never mind, sorry. Depending on how, I guess, intimate you were in that interaction, it could be a little awkward. Um, but, but that does go to show that everything around us, it's dictated by perception. And a lot of the times, as experiences accumulate over time, we realize our perception is very rarely on point with reality. And it's not necessarily an indictment on you as an individual or myself, it's just kind of a situation that we all bear in mind being humans. God knows it, that's why we have four Gospels. It's four different perceptions on who Christ is, because we don't always, being single-minded human beings, we have one point of view for everything going on around us, and we get a small sliver, if we get it right, of everything going on. Pardon my hands. This isn't a skin disease or bad hygiene. I noticed a couple of you noticed I forgot to address it. I was doing some waterproofing earlier, and I thought I had some fast orange. It did not come off at all. So this, I'm, I'm healthy. It's okay. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the plague. It's not black or anything like that. It's, it's, it's just waterproofing. It's tar. Um, but if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 28, that's where we'll be tonight. And in this text, as well as really the whole book of Matthew, the idea of perception is what's being addressed. We have here one perspective on who Christ is, and it's the most important perception and perspective that we can have, and that is how we perceive the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's why we have four Gospels. It's why there's four times an emphasis. It's the only subject in which it takes four books to articulate in God's Word. It's not like God needed four times to get it right. He just emphasizes it so much because it's the most important thing we have in our lives. How we perceive Christ is everything. In fact, the idea of the image of God, maybe you can argue it, but personally in my studies, I don't know if there's a greater emphasized theme other than the image of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we're first introduced to God as our creator, and we're first introduced to ourselves as his image bearer. And the reason that is is because that's our one job. Our one job on earth is to bear God's image. And that's pretty much determined by how we perceive God and how we hold his image in our heart ourselves. In the book of Matthew, God is so gracious, he uses Matthew to write to a specific group of people. This isn't a gospel dispensation of the rest of the world so that they can come to know Christ. This is actually just people who have already met him. Matthew is writing specifically to the very Jews in his lifetime that met Christ and rejected him. These are the ones that crucified him. These are the ones that rejected him. And God is so gracious that even after they already crucified him and Christ has already ascended, he's giving him a second chance. Though we receive the benefit from it, primarily, this is to those very Jews that crucified our Savior. And so Matthew isn't writing this gospel in a typical format. This isn't a chronological flow. This isn't a timeline. Matthew has actually constructed this gospel piece to prove a point, an argument. He's wanting to shape their point of view, their framework of how they perceive Christ, specifically as the king. The king they rejected him as. Basically, they, they wanted a liberator, and they got a suffering Messiah, and they said, no. We, we look at one half of the scriptures that we want, we don't want any of this. The irony is when the time came, they said, we have no king but Caesar, give us Barabbas, the Caesar rebeller. <laughs> they said, we have no king but Caesar, but we want the zealot. We'll take him over Jesus. And their hypocrisy showed so fervently throughout their stubbornness that, that it was just all over themselves to the point where they just condemned and crucified the very one God sent to save them. So Matthew is taking the very lines of the prophecies that they claim to hold to of their liberating Messiah, and he's taking the lines of Jesus' life, and he's taking them and he's weaving them together to paint a picture that Christ is that very conquering king. 
He is that liberating Messiah. But he's proving the context of which he came. Well, they got it wrong. And so he's trying to get them to let go of that. He's trying to grapple with their hearts and get them to let go of this false identity, this false perception they have of who Jesus is, and relinquish it to accept the Messiah as Christ intended to be, the Christ that he is, the one that God sent and had in mind from the beginning. So Matthew starts with the genealogies, the royal bloodline. He introduces us to uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the, the term forerunner means, all it is, it's the, it's the guy that comes before the king and announces his coming, rolls out the red carpet and says, get ready, the king is here. And so he says he's a forerunner. It's the idea that he's building this construct that, that Christ is the messianic king, that he truly is king. All through the Bible, all through this passage, everyone's getting it wrong. Even the ones who supposedly get it right. Peter, who am I? Well, some say you're Elias. So no, no, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. And he gets it right in part, but as the story goes, it's revealed, he doesn't really get it. He says, Peter, I'm going to die. No, you're not. Get behind me, Satan. What? He says, you, 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 zeal, you have a zeal for the things of man, not the things of the Lord. He says, disciples, I'm going to die. Who do you think is the best among us? I've seen you. I'm better than you. I know that. I'm the greatest disciple. And while he's trying to tell them he's going to die, they're hosting, giving out trophies for the greatest disciple award. And they're ignorant. They're ignoring him. In fact, the only person that was ready for it that got it right was Mary. It wasn't even an apostle. It wasn't with them three years. And disciples that follow him around were so caught up in the miracles and their own greatness that every time Jesus rehearsed over and over and over again trying to prepare for them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I came here to die. This is how I'm fulfilling my role. I'm going to die. They blew it. They blew it just like everyone else. When the time came, they ran. And when Jesus rose again and he met them on the road, this was their response. Jesus comes up to him. What's going on? Where have you been? Haven't you heard? This guy we thought was the Messiah, we followed him, and they crucified him. We thought he was the one. And because Jesus' death, they weren't listening. They tripped up over it. And after all that time, they said, we thought he was the Messiah. So Jesus has to sit them down again, and he goes all through the scriptures and rehearses, teaching them of himself from Genesis up until that point. And then by the time he's done, they realize it and he's gone. And they question within themselves, didn't our hearts burn within us with our speech? Didn't, it? didn't we really know? We knew something was up. We knew something was off. And they finally got it. At the, this portion of Matthew, Matthew is still writing to those very Jews. The very Jews who didn't get it. But at this point, he's, he's capitalizing on this whole story to prove to them of what it looks like for those who actually recognize Jesus for who he is. So they don't know. The Romans are going to come in and take everything they're holding on to. They're still holding on to the sacrifices. The temple in which they sacrifice it, they're not even going to be able to anymore. Their whole world's about to be rocked. And God's giving them a second chance to get it right before they don't know what to do with themselves. So when we come to Matthew 28, verse 16, the Bible says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, 
even unto the end of the world. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask tonight, as we are privileged to be in your house and hear from your word, Lord, just ask that you would use me as the vessel as I am, unworthy as I am, to just clearly articulate your word as it's intended, Lord, that we may receive the message that you want for us and that we would respond in faith according to your will. Lord, we ask that you would have your will in your way and that our hearts would be receptive to you in every way. Lord, we love you and thank you for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus told them to meet them at the mountain, and they were obedient, and they did. And at this point in time, Jesus comes to them, and he kind of appears, kind of shows up, just appears out of thin air, and kind of catches them off guard. That's why it says some doubted. They were kind of caught like deer in headlights. They are just stunned. They didn't know what to do with themselves. But the ones who actually could get it together and got it right, it's very important that we notice this, and it's kind of glossed over a lot of times when this text is rehearsed. When they actually saw Jesus appear, at this point he's ascended, he's taught them, he's built them back up together, he's spent some time with them. They finally now know who he is. He appears, he shows up on the scene. And they all get down and worship. They worship. They didn't pray, they didn't stand in awe, they got on their face and worshiped. And anytime in the Bible, there's no other definition of this word. When you see the word worship, It is always followed by the example of getting on your face, prostrate before the king, and recognizing his greatness to those who are inferior. Jesus doesn't deny it. He simply receives it. He says, you you finally get it. You recognize me for who I am, and right you are. He says, they worship him. Why is that? Well, it's the only proper response to give deity, to give a king. That when he comes, you worship him. They get it. They finally get it. They're worshiping him as he is, in the fullness extent. He's revealed himself as the Messiah as he intended. Fall after the, after he, he was crucified, after he rose, they're finally still receiving that Messiah, the true Messiah for who he is. They're receiving that Messiah, and they're worshiping him. To those who worshiped him, to those who worship Christ, this is what he said. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Basically saying, you got it right. You got it right. But in that, he's broadening some things and he's expanding on some things that have already been said. Saying all power has been given unto me, basically referencing the idea that he has power over death and the grave. Not that he's been given more power than he already had, but he's displayed it. He's put his his display of power on for all and saying it's all been given to me. I have used it to its fullness extent in that I have achieved power over the grave. I've exemplified it. All power is given unto me. But then he expands it and he points it to them being Jews, their messianic king. He says, in heaven and in earth. Basically saying, I have authority over all. I am supreme. I am king. But I'm not just king to you. I'm not just the Jewish king. And they've been so fixated at this point in time over being liberated from the Roman government and they couldn't even get his identity right that now that they finally do, he's fixing the other side of that and he's saying, I'm not just your king. I'm king of all creation. I'm king of the universe. I am king over all. And he's standing in the triumphant form, conquering death, sin, and the grave. And it's like they're finally now getting it. It's almost as though as he stands in front of them, his foot is on Satan's head. They're getting the prophecies. They're they're understanding the crucifixion for what it was intended. They're seeing it now as a victory 
and not as a defeat. They're, they're seeing it. It's becoming clear. And he's standing before them triumphant, like the very messianic king they wanted to see. Now they're finally seeing him one and the same. The liberating Messiah, but greater in scope than what they thought. Not from the Roman government, but from their sin, from themselves, from the consequences of sin. He said, no, no, I am king. I am king over everything. And recognizing them as that, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. See, I'm not just king of the nation of Israel. I'm king over every nation on earth. But those who recognize me, simply what he's saying, if you recognize me for who I am, then it's your duty to make sure the rest of the world recognizes me for who I am as well. If I'm king of the universe, it's my sovereign right, it's my sovereign privilege to rule over every nation, not just Israel. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach them all who I am. That I'm not this wimpy guy who, who was defeated by the Roman government. I, I'm, not, I'm not this doormat. I, I wasn't defeated. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a good prophet. I'm not a good teacher. No, I'm king of the universe. And if you see me as such, make sure the rest of the world does as well. Go and teach all nations. Let them see me for who I am as king. King of all creation. I've given you the authority. You can go without doubt. You can go without fear. You can go without apology. I've given you permission. I've given you commission. I've commanded you to do it. Go and teach all nations that I am king. He says, go on further, and he says, and when you do, I want you to follow through with that. I want you to baptize them. He's just not dipping them in water. He says, I want you to baptize them in the name. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Sometimes we take that for granted. It's if it's something we say three times before someone's put submerged in water. But it's not. It's very significant at this time. This time the Caesars ruled, the Pharaohs had been ruling, and almost every ruler of every nation's claimed deity of some form or kind. They claim to be a god. And to be baptized in the name denotes allegiance. Denotes allegiance to one and disannuls another. To be baptized in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Ghost is at the same point in time to say publicly declaring, Caesar's not God. Pharaoh's not God. Your tribal, your tribal gods that you, you worship, your idols, they're not God. Those things that you submit to in form of government, they're not God. They're not supreme ruler. They're not supreme king. There's only one, and it's Jesus. It's not a rebellious tearing off the shackles and going off and looting type of thing. It's simply saying, I'll obey God rather than man. It's saying that Jesus is God and simply you're not. And it's giving sole allegiance to him alone. And any other power that wants to contradict it or come and confront it or come up against it, that over the two, Jesus is going to win out. He has my allegiance. He has my heart. So why is that significant? Well, at this point in time, to be baptized is like signing your death warrant. It's saying, go ahead. I don't care. You have no power over me. I've submitted myself to his. Come after me if you will, but I'm his and he's mine. And my allegiance is to him. And that's put everything on the line. Everything on the line from the get-go to follow Christ was put at risk. They submitted their whole lives knowing that they could be on the run, they could be persecuted, they could lose everything. It's not like they were going to be surprised by it. They saw what they did to him. They knew that they'd be in jeopardy. That's why they ran. Be baptized now is to confront those very fears that they ran from before. It's willing to die. It's willing to follow him to the very end. They were already denying themselves and taking up their cross and following him from the beginning. He says, baptize them. Gain me their allegiance. If they see me as king and they recognize me of that, the natural response 
would be to submit to him, to give him their allegiance, to submit to him as the king of their lives. And if you're going to submit to him as the king of your life, you probably ought to know what he expects of you. So the next logical conclusion would be, teach them to observe my commandments. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Namely, he wants to receive his commandments first before you go and teach them to someone else. That the way you perceive God's law, and that's a governing rule for your life, and then once it's appropriate to your life, you then teach it to those who are willing to submit to it as well. But it's not just to haphazardly go and obey the Great Commission and just go teach people the Bible without having willing to say every day, this is a ruling authority over my life. And with the best of my ability, by God's grace, I am going to observe it. I am going to obey. These are the commandments that I'm going to submit to. They are mine to obey. And then they are mine to teach. He says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's a pretty hefty task. Saying, well, they're probably ready for it. Not if you read the narrative up until this point. These are about the biggest group of failures you'd ever seen in the Bible. A bunch of nobodies. Tax collectors. Zealots, some of them were pretty wealthy at the time, maybe successful businessmen, not necessarily successful in life, definitely not at speech if you're Peter. And when they got closer to them, they'd be rebuked, they'd get the lesson wrong, they'd forget what they were taught before, they couldn't appropriate what they learned up until that point, and when the time came to actually stand by him, they fled. They fled. They just had the biggest failure they've ever had in their lives. They left everything. Friends, family, business, everything to follow a man who they'd ultimately forsake. He's giving this commission to them. A group of nobody failures. Not in their past life, in their present life, with him. Makes you wonder why in the world you would give this commission to this group of guys after what they did. Could have gone to Mary could have gone to any other disciple that may have shown themselves faithful, more faithful than them in various situations, but no, he comes to them. Those who got it right now and are willing to worship him, he says, I want you to go and confront the very nations, the very things you ran from, I want you to conquer them. I want you to conquer their hearts in my name through my word. I want you to teach them. I want you to show them who I am, the very one that you ran from. The one you denied, I want you to put on display. The one that you ran from, I want you to get other people's allegiance for. The one you disobeyed, I want you to teach his commandments. He tells these guys. Kind of makes you wonder where he gets off doing that. I thought he's wrong. But what does Jesus have in mind? What's he thinking at this point? Why would he commission almost the worst people at this point proven with this task? To go all over the world and teach the man they denied to the rest of the world, to teach nations whom they feared. To be given that burden right after that, that'd be daunting for anybody. It's daunting for me now. It's daunting for them probably more than any for us could ever imagine. And yet, right before Jesus ascends, this is what he's leaving them with. Like, they just got back together. They just got close again. They blew it. They broke fellowship. They ran from him. He goes after them after they ran from him. He heals their hearts. He gets them back together, and he gives them this commission. And he's saying, by the way, I'm leaving. Uh, what? 
you're, you're the only good thing we have going on right now. We left everything, and then we blew it, and now you came back for us, and now you're going to leave again? It's too soon. It's too soon. We, we just got right. We, we, we spent three years with you, and we got it wrong. Now we spent, what, maybe a few days with you, and now you're giving us this? Seriously? We can't do that. How, how are we going to do this? In fact, why, why are you leaving? Please, please don't. We just got it right. It's probably the most fearful time in their situation. They're completely insecure. They're completely vulnerable. They're completely afraid. They're in doubt of themselves. They're in doubt of their faith. They just got over their doubt of who he is. And now he's giving them the biggest task he's ever given them up to date. It's a worldwide task. It's insurmountable. And he says, I'm going to leave you. How are they going to do it? It's almost like he's setting them up for failure. He's not. But at this point in time, it sure seems like it. It's almost like he wants them to fall. But we know Christ's heart at this point. We know it's not true. So how in the world are they going to do this? Well, that's the main point. It's not about them. It never was about them. This book of Matthew isn't about them. And to the Jews, he's not trying to prove how amazing the disciples are that Jesus trusts them so much to give this commission. But no, he says this, I am with you always. And the commission he gave them is not to be their focus, but rather it's his power by which he presented. The conquering power that they couldn't see, the conquering power that they refused to recognize, the conquering power that conquered sin, that conquered death, that conquered the grave, that very power is going to be with them by his very presence. He says, yes, I'm leaving, and in John, it communicates it more in depth, but he'll be sending a comforter. And he gives them instructions away to Pentecost for the Holy Ghost. And by the presence of the Holy Ghost, they have the presence of their Savior with them at all times. He's leaving, but they're getting a greater sense of his presence than they ever had before. Not simply because the Holy Spirit is inhabiting them, but they have his interaction with them in their entire lives. They may want to cleave and clutch onto Jesus' physical embodiment upon his physical presence, but they're actually gaining more than what they'll ever lose. And it's by his presence that they're enabled and that they're empowered to fulfill this commission. It's not in their abilities. They've already proven that. It's not in their dedication to them. They failed at that. It's not in their self-will. It's not in anything that they have. In fact, Jesus gives a great commission and bases it solely on the empowerment of his presence. Say, why is this so important? Because it's Christianity. Like, all of Christianity is locked up in this text. They're being left on earth and he's leaving. The last time he sent them out at the 72 to go out and preach, he told them, don't rejoice over the fact that you can cast out diseases and cast out demons. Don't rejoice. They came out going, look at what we did. Look at what we did with our hands. This is incredible. And he said, don't, don't rejoice over that. They came back like conquering heroes after a battle. This is the point was when Jesus basically made an invasion on the kingdom of darkness. And they came back victorious heroes, kind of amazed at what Jesus allowed them to do. And he says, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice in the fact that you have a home in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that you know me. And now he's leaving them there with that knowledge. Why would he leave them there if they have a home in heaven? Why after showing them that the only thing he wants for them is to ever draw closer to him and yet he's leaving them? The one and only purpose is that those who recognize him for who he is would stay behind so that the rest of the world that doesn't would come to know them as they do. It's the natural response and it's the order in which God designed it. See, if you know him, the natural desire is that you'd want others to know him as you know him. 
The problem is we don't really know him as much as we say we do. And we definitely don't see him like we say we do. Disciples, Peter said, I know you're the Christ. But did he really see him like he was? No. He proved to still see him as fallible when he rebuked him. He proved to see him as all-powerful. All definitely didn't see him as all-powerful when he was crucified. He ran. Definitely didn't see him as a loving protector when he denied him and cursed at him. He definitely didn't see him high and holy and lifted up when they were all trying to prove their own greatness amongst themselves. It's the only place humility stems from. No, they didn't see him for who he was. And their behavior was a giveaway. And what Matthew was articulating to the Jews still at this point is that while you still think you're waiting behind for the Messiah, there's going to be others that have been left behind that received him. And when you can't sacrifice in your temple and you can't commit the same Judaic rules and laws that you were given, that, that are old, that are done away with, and I'm no longer enabling you to fulfill, when you're done with that, those who actually truly see me and know me, you'll find them doing this. You'll find them worshiping me and spreading who I am throughout the rest of the world. That's the natural response. See, you and I, when we fail to allow our lives to be encompassed in this commandment, which is really what it is, to know him, to teach him. See, if we saw teaching his identity as an overarching, encompassing effect of our lives, everything would fall under that. Every person needs to either be saved, discipled, or baptized. And every interaction you have with doesn't necessarily have to be, have you been baptized yet? You better get up there. It doesn't have to be like that. But it is why we have other commandments that say oh, everything you say should be edifying, should be sprinkled with grace, should be to the effect of building others up in charity. Why? Well, that's another form of discipleship. Those who have been saved and baptized, you're teaching them one way or another by building them up, some form or fashion. If we did live by this, we wouldn't be trying to prove our own ground, trying to gossip, trying to establish our own will, build our own kingdoms. We would be seeking the welfare of another according to their spiritual needs. And it doesn't necessarily mean that everything you do has to be preaching some Bible text. It could be taking someone out to lunch. But it be by the observance of God's commandments, by your testimony, to back up to what you have to say maybe later on. But your interactions somehow are being governed by this commission. At least if you've received it as it is, which is, should be, your life goal. This is the church. This is Christ's worshipers. This is everything that his church is striving towards. Every ministry that you see in church, everything that we do. Yeah, there may be a pie fellowship and there may be something else and that fellowship creates a greater tight-knit unity. But the bottom line and the overarching umbrella for everything that we do here is to the furtherance of the gospel. And the minute it becomes something else, the reality is it's the minute we fail to be a church by this standard. If we become more about the fun and the fellowship and less about what's going on out there, it's the minute we become a Christian social club and we're not being used as Christ's vehicle for the dispensation of the gospel as he intended. That's why we we're here. So the only reason why he'd leave us behind and prepare for us a place above. We're here so that others would know him as we know him. And that's why our greatest mission starts out with seeing him as he truly is. And that's shown first thing. That's why Matthew's ordered it like he has. Yes, this happened to happen chronologically in this narrative at this point in time, but Matthew left it that way because it helped prove his point. When they saw him, they worshipped him. 
they worshiped him. They saw him high and holy and lifted up. They saw him as God Almighty. They saw him on the throne. They saw him as over everything. They weren't governed by their fear. They weren't governed by their selfish ambitions. Everything was let go in the face of who he was. He was all that mattered. And when everything else was gone away, he gave them this. He says, empty your life and fill it with this commission. I am your goal. I am your everything. And if you receive me for who I am, your life will be viewed as such. And the minute we fail to see God for who he is, is the minute our lives begin to deviate from his will. It's the minute our behavior starts to give us away. But James goes over it in various forms. He says, when you see that person being a respecter of persons, being nicer to the rich man and meaner to the poor man, what that gives away is they see God's not fair. So they have to go about achieving their means in their own hands. And everything we do gives away how we perceive God. Not how we say, not how we doctrinally know him, but the image we bear in our hearts of Christ dictates how we live. And until we actually come to the point of seeing him, we won't fulfill his commandment. Until we actually perceive him for who he is, we're not going to live for him like we should. A lot of times this is why American Christianity is very self-consumed very, very prosperity, or leans towards and is susceptible towards prosperity gospel. We've hijacked Christianity and made it all about ourselves so often. And a lot of the time, a lot of the times, because we see worship simply as something that they do across the street. We look at that a lot of the times. I'm not saying we, everybody here in this room does, but I know culturally it's true. We look at what happens across the street and we go, that's weird. But really, they're doing the right thing to the wrong person. And we do the wrong thing to the right person. The greater indictment's on us because we have a book telling us exactly what we need to know, what we need to do. And from Genesis to Revelation, it shows us exactly how to do it. We should be worshiping him. And what it shows is that it's really from a heart of worship that flows out a life of obedience. Because until you see him as king of the universe, as king of your life, the all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who sees you, not only when you want him to see you, and somehow he's busy, distracted, went through secret sins. No. No, when we realize the eyes of the Lord run to and fro on the earth, we behave differently. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, we live differently. When we see him as king, as sufficient, we don't see him as unfair. We go to him for all our needs. When we see him as the father of lights that gives us every good thing, that he is truly good, we don't complain. We don't throw fits when things don't go our way. It's the biggest revealer. How you see God, how you see Christ dictates how you behave. And if we truly want to live for him, if we really want to see him for who he is, one of the easiest practical ways is to cultivate that vision through worship. By getting on our faces before him, focusing on him, not even praying, not asking. He's not our genie. Our prayer life often reveals if we see him that way, if we go to him, ask him for a hundred different things, go, oh yeah, we thank you for these other couple things I'm just now remembering how ungrateful I am for. So often happens. It's not thanking him. It's not going through this repetition. It's not... It's not this routine. No. It's going to him and simply focusing on him and bestowing upon him his characteristics and recognizing him for who he is. So from this text, how do people view God through your life? How is your life giving away how you view Christ? What does the image of Christ actually look like in your heart? Because that is the image you're bearing in life. It's the natural effect. It's how we're created. How you see God dictates how you live. So with this, as it's coming up on Missions Month, we're having John Landy, he's going to be here quite a bit. We're having our missions emphasis. Please don't come to God and ask him, am I called to missions? 
On the authority of this text, you are. Don't ask, if I called to go or am I called to send? You're called to do both. If I go to Poland and I plant a church, you know what I'm going to be doing there? I'm going to be sending other people elsewhere. I'm going to be doing the same thing I'm doing here, just over there. Nothing changes. It's just a different language and a different culture. Every single one of us, on the authority of this text, is called to go and called to send. God's individual will for your life is only in the context of how he wants to use you specifically for that purpose. But at the end of the day, this is everything. And until we are willing to give ourselves entirely to this, we're not going to find what God has for us. So with that, I just want to challenge you. Recognize him. Recognize him for who he is and recognize what his will is for your life, mainly everything for the gospel. With that, we'll pray. Dearly Father, Lord, just want to thank you for your word and your will. Lord, we thank you that you do let us know what you want us to do and how you want us to live. And Lord, please help us to walk worthy of you. Please help us to not mar your image in our hearts as we're so easily prone to distort our view of you through life, through circumstances, through our own sin nature. Please help us spend time with you in the word and in prayer and rightly view you for who you are and that we may live for you as we should. Lord, we love you and thank you for all that you are. And please help us to live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.